millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, healthcare is one of the most serious public interest issues at the moment. We have waiting lists, for instance, of up to a million people in total. We've constant elements of crisis about various strands of the system. And we have unequal access because the system is two-tiered. As we know, the agreed political plan, Slauncha Care, is designed to deal with all of these issues and particularly to move towards a single-tiered system. Now, within that system that we currently have, one of the success stories of recent years has been cancer care. Since the establishment of the Centres of Excellence strategy under Tom Keane, there's fairly widespread consensus that care and crucially mortality has greatly improved. But is that the whole story? On Monday of this week, political activist Mark McMahon wrote in the Irish Examiner about his own experience with cancer and what he has observed during unfortunately relatively frequent stays in hospital due to his condition. Martin, and many of you may well know, is the co-founder of the Tartish Shack podcast and he's been a long advocate for tackling bogus self-employment, including he has also fed into proposed legislation. Today, though, he's here to talk about his own experience at the hands of the healthcare system and what he believes is done well within it and what is not, unfortunately, going well at the moment. Martin, you're very welcome. Thanks, Mick. Martin, we'll come to the substance of uh, what was a really insightful piece, I have to say, that you wrote in the paper. We'll come to that in a minute. But about your own story, when and how did you discover that you had cancer? Accidentally, Mick, I was 41. I went to the doctor with a pull muscle. Um, I wouldn't have seen much of the doctor in the the years before that, I had had a, an itchy mole on my backside coming home from holiday in Spain. I had the little one sitting on my knee, you know, when they're below a certain age. So it had bothered me and it had been a couple of months before. And I remember thinking on the flight, I'll get the doc to take a look at that. So while I was in getting the pull muscle looked at, I got him to look at it. And he wasn't worried. I wasn't worried. He said, we'll just whip it off. You know yourself, the precautionary. And I'd had that done 10 years before with a, a mole on my chest. Never thought another thing about it. Um, so three weeks later, I got a phone call on a Friday evening and it was the dermatologist who'd taken it off and he apologized for ringing. And he said, you have cancer. You have to be in Beaumont on Monday morning and it's, it's not good. And that's exactly what he said. And I suppose in the first instance, in terms of delivering that kind of news, look, it's never going to be in an ideal situation. And I suppose the urgency uh, dictated that it would have to be by telephone. But um, it's pretty, it's pretty devastating feeling, I would have thought. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'll say from that point, Mick, for 18 months, feet did not touch the ground. Everything was, you, you never got time to analyse anything or... It was all reactionary. You were just reacting to whatever situation you were in and the situation changed fast. So 
didn't really get a chance to, you don't get a chance to reflect. It's just full on. That's, it just doesn't stop. And in terms of lifestyle, Martin, was that impacted immediately? Oh, gotcha. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, immediately and permanently. Like, in what ways? Um, had to go on treatments, had to have operations. Um, you know, they cut it away and give you chemo. That's, that's the general gist of it. And there's a lot of cutting away. You know, they have to be, they have to do the best job they can. And they do, as you said, the cancer treatments have improved immensely. And when I first started going into Beaumont, it was like, um, it was the most depressing thing. It was a small room with easy boy relaxer chairs and a dozen people on chemo, all very public and people are at their absolute worst. They're at the worst and it's, it's the hardest place to be. It's so much better now. Um, it's bright. It's airy. It's, there's a little bit of privacy. It is. It's a different world now to what it was, but other aspects of the, the healthcare system are just failing miserably, miserably. Okay. And just the process itself as, and naturally you, you'll appreciate huge number of people do go through it, but as well, fortunately, huge number have never experienced it. But my understanding of it is that the whole process of the chemo of itself becomes a major physical and psychological ordeal separate to the actual condition itself. Yeah, I I, I spoke to, I know you know this, I spoke to Brendan Ogle recently where the two of us had a chat about having cancer and Brendan's had it about 13, 14 months, but he's been struggling with cancer in the family longer than that and and you know sad outcomes and, and bad outcomes and the both of us talked about the effects and it is you have to you know when you hit the chemo it, it does take a lot out of your body Um there's a, an impetus on us all to try and get back to work but a lot of the time the doctor will tell us no that's not what you should be doing and that we have to deal with the stress in our lives and reevaluate where we are and in the long run they're right in the long run, they are absolutely right. You need to reevaluate your life and see what got you to this point and see what you can do to have a better life. Maybe not a longer one, but a better one. Right. And you mentioned Brendan Ogle. Of course, people will be aware Brendan is, is the very well-known uh, trade unionist and, and he's been public also about, uh, unfortunately, what he's gone through at the moment and we wish him very well in that respect. Um, and coming back to yourself, Martin, then the whole scenario, you do chemo, is there a period where you're told, okay, things are looking all right, uh, you should be able to get back to normal? And do you get, to put it this way, something of a reprieve from the condition at various points? Yeah, 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 you do. You get a reprieve. There's no back to normal, Mick. Your body is, is it depends with me, it was the left side, left leg. And, you know, I, I'm not able to cycle a bike or run. Now, can I get around? Yeah, most days I get around just fine. Um but, you know, can I be on my feet or sitting down in a chair for four, five, six, seven hours? No, no, certainly can't. And then you get hit every now and again. With me, it's been infections, quite a lot of infections over the last few years. So you get hit. You don't know when it's coming. You're going to spend a week in hospital. You're going to spend two weeks recovering. Um, it's not very job friendly. And it's not a very job friendly to be, way to be. Now I had a great employer who have supported me a hundred percent, uh, Spanish family owned business. And I haven't a bad word to say about them. You know, not a bad word. They were great employers, but I'm lucky 
in that sense. And I know that not everybody is. And I know not everybody is. Yeah, and that's a very good point. And again, another element that an awful lot of people don't think about, but when somebody's stricken as you are, Martin, and, and as it's so much of it in society, that aspect of it, as you say, you're in your early 40s, uh, physically relatively good condition, um, and then it's unable to return, I suppose, to the kind of robust uh, position that you might have been in previously. And at that stage, uh, a huge amount comes down to if one had been in employment, the, the the nature of the, I suppose, the insurance, the nature, the character of the employer and that. And as you said, some people are not lucky as you have been in that respect. And that really must pile on the stress on anybody who, and their family, quite obviously, who finds themselves at that juncture um, in their illness. You know, you know me, Rick, I like talking to people. So when I'm in hospital, I talk to people and I don't want to give away anybody's details or oh, there's, yeah, yeah. there's people in difficult positions. There's men younger than you and I who have been renting and suddenly have had a stroke or have had a heart attack that's debilitating. And not only are they dealing with the condition, they're dealing with where will I live? And then that dealing with where will I live becomes there is no place to put me. And then it falls back on the acute healthcare system to try and manage that person's health when really they should be in a different facility. Yeah, I suppose it references there the wider um, social care system or what have you in, in relation to the kind of scenario that people can very easily find themselves in. And some people, for I suppose people who are self-employed then are in a different ball game again. They've a, a different issue to cope with in that respect. Yeah, bills, and we've we've heard about the the collection agencies for the hospitals. You know, it's look, Mick. We all know the problems. We all recognise the problems. We all ignore the problems on a daily basis until it's one of our own that's in there, and then we're just happy to get out the other side, and we don't want to rock the boat, and we vote for the same people who've been. How do you say? It's it's withered, Mick. The health service is withered on its feet. It's past crisis point. It is worse than it was during the pandemic. There's no staff. That's the big, big problem to start with. There's no staff. And they're going to have to radically rethink it. And they're just going to have to radically rethink it. There's no place to, to, to get home help for elderly people in Meath or Kildare. Imagine that. There's none. Okay, and just to take it through that... I that respect, and as I say, you wrote about very cogently in the paper, periodically, as you say, Martin, you'd be impacted and you might have infections and that would mean you you had to go in. And you wrote about the most recent one of these, and I think you described it as you you hit the floor there one day not so long ago. Would you just take us through there from that point? Yeah, um, well, I think it was this day last week I hit the floor. Um, it's been coming for ages. I don't know what it is, Mick. I have no idea. Um it's severe abdominal pain, vomiting that lasts for a very, very long time. It can last, it lasted 10 weeks um, in two very quick bouts that came one after the other in January, February, or sorry, in February, March and April. And the pain is excruciating. It really is. And I've presented twice with um, that inflammation of the stomach that, and, and I can't remember, but it's, it's bordering on blood poisoning. So I don't know what it is, and I don't. And it's it, this is, you know, half a dozen times I've been in 
A&Es since Christmas and I've been in three or four different A&Es since Christmas. So when I'm talking about A&Es, the problem isn't just one hospital. It's a universal Mm. problem that's going on at the moment. So I got, you know, I had to call the ambulance or somebody else called it for, I couldn't, there was, there was just nothing. I was gone with the pain. And that's not that you're not conscious. You're very conscious of it. So, you know, I got in by ambulance and I'm not sure when I got a bed. I did get a bed, got great care, but then it reached a point where without any answers, I had reached the end of the journey in there because my bed was needed more by somebody else. Not that I was finished the journey. It was just that that journey would have to take place outside of an acute setting. So from from where you were, Martin, you're saying that in terms of your care while you were in there, it was not dictated by your needs as somebody with a condition, but more by what was perceived as being priorities and needs within the hospital to allocate or to take charge of a limited number of places for the kind of acute care that you needed. 100%, Mick. That's it. Limited resources. You know, as I said, not enough nurses, not enough beds. And you spoke about waiting lists at the beginning and nearly a million. Well, the waiting lists are the steam valve from all of this. And that's what they are. Um, When they can't get the patients to flow through the hospitals, A&Es build up. When A&Es build up, lists get longer because there's no space in the hospitals to do what they need to do. Again, none of this is news. The, the issue is at what point do we say there's the red line? Now it must be fixed. Uh, okay, with a million on waiting lists. Is that not enough of a red line? Okay, but yeah, we're, we're going to come to all of that. Absolutely. But in your experience, Martin, that latest stay that you had in hospital and how you perceived that was handled was that similar to, if we go back, say, 10, 12 years, and presumably no. you'd have had something no. similar, what were the differences between perhaps those two um, timelines? I'll tell you what the, the great difference that I see as a patient and as up front is the lack of humanity in it, Mick. We've reduced nurses to um, to just doing tasks. They just carry out tasks. It's not about care. It's about doing a set number of tasks in a day. But that's not what care is. And when you think of the proportion of the population or the the group that end up most in hospital beds, it's elderly people. And as I explained, you know, there's a lot of why should we care about elder people, stuff like that going on at the moment. Elderly people, like my own folks, which are minding each other the whole time, it's not that they're afraid to die. They're afraid to die and leave the other person alone. That's what's going on. That's, it's, you know, they don't see dying as a failure. They see the failure is that they're not there to mind the other person. Mm. And when you say they're reduced to tasks, Martin, is that because they are under such stress and there aren't enough personnel there to do the job with the requisite care that should be given? Immense stress, Mick. Immense. Absolutely, utterly immense The only thing really holding the service together at the moment is the will of those people. I mean, how many times a day could they declare A&E's full? I mean, they're over capacity every single day, every single day. I mean, they're walking into mini disasters every single day. You can't keep going in that chaos, yet we expect them to keep going in that chaos. And 
the nothing, as I said, no staff, no beds, and no plan to fix what's broken. And this is really the problem. Yes, we had Slaunch Care, which was thought up pre-pandemic. And we've since had Robert Watts say, well, you know, I'm not interested in Slaunch Care. But really, the, the entire system is a step behind. We should be looking at an EU-wide health system. Mm. And, 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 you know, quantities of scale, you're able to then buy cheaper, do more. And because of the pandemic, we've learned nothing. We've gone backwards. We now treat the health service with more disdain than we treated it before the pandemic. Yeah, no, and just, I suppose, just for clarity, you mentioned Robert Watt, who's the Secretary General of the Department of Health. And to be fair to him, I don't think he said he wasn't interested in slanchic care, but that may be an interpretation of some people, but he certainly had a different approach than perhaps yes, some, yes. particularly some within politics and that believed the correct approach should be, or, or the most appropriate approach, not the correct approach. So I think it was just a very, he, he, he perhaps was coming from a different position that may well have as much validity as anything and everybody I think it's fair to say has the same uh, intention of, of, of bettering the service um, now you mentioned again in your piece you referenced a man called Frank I think you're somebody who's anonymized, but you pointed out he was a yeah. retired member of Ungarda Shikana tell us a bit about him and, and, and particularly his, his attitude to uh, his health insurance when he was retired and all that sort of thing and how you how you encountered him Frank is, is, I've known Frank, or uh, even known of, you know, you get past a certain age and everything comes through the ma or the da, then you learn. But, uh, you know, I've kept up with Frank's life. And um, about two months ago, my dad got a phone call. My dad's in his 80s, not well, blah, blah, the whole lot. And he got a phone call from the blue out of Frank. They hadn't spoken for a few years. And Frank said, I'm just ringing around to see who's left alive. And, and that was what he said. So he's a lovely fella. And old Garda, uh, Garda, he's he's retired many years. He's paid his VHI, paid it when it was tough to pay it, you know, in the last 10 years. Pensioners, they wouldn't be in on much, you know. And his missus has taken care of him. And that's what happens with, with older couples. And he avoided COVID as best he could, and they did until very recently, and he got it. And then not long after, he started coughing up blood and because he had his private insurance, he could avoid A&E. And he did. And he went to his, his private hospital and he was admitted. And there he waited to see his consultant. But he didn't know that his consultant was on holidays. They were wanted to kick him out, even though he had private health insurance. But he stood his ground for four days. Now, he's an old man and he might have been a huge man once. I don't know if he's still a huge man. But, you know... He was strong, mentally strong enough to stand his ground and say, no, I'm not happy with my condition and I'm not going anywhere till I know what's going on, which he did. And I don't know, I don't know what the end up of that, what happened to Frank was other than he's home and he's doing well. But, you know, a lot of people aren't like Frank and they end up in the public system by default. If it's, if it's not easy for the private and, um, you know, if it's long term care, if it's complicated care, if addiction issues, None of that gets into the private. And there has to be a better way of managing our health service overall so that the public doesn't end up a dumping ground for what's too complicated for the private. And so in in, in that instance, um, Frank was, as, as you said, he was moved into the public system because... 
they they wanted to move him in, yeah. Nick, but he wouldn't. Right. He wouldn't. He wouldn't budge. And as you say, other people who may not be as equipped as he fortunately was, they could end up uh, being moved in that respect. I, I, I do think so. And I know it's very difficult within the hospitals to manage the patient flow. To keep, and it has to flow. If it doesn't flow, it grinds to a halt. But every day is fighting that grind. And I know people will say, well, we we spend so much more on our health service than X does. But yes, we're coming off a very low base. So we have some catching up to do. And honestly, when you're firefighting all the time, that's where the expense is. It's the constant firefighting. But we do need to, to rethink it. We need to find ways to keep people out of A&E hospitals or A&E departments so that hospitals can function for what they are, which is acute care. And that means more community care. That means more home helps. That means more carers. And it means you're going to have to spend the money to make it happen. Um, I mean, it's not that long ago, maybe 10 years, Mick, you might remember Brendan Gleeson was on the, mm. the Late Late Show talking about his mother, or I think it was his mother, dying in A&E and the lack of dignity that goes with that. But that's where most of our relatives are ending up. And that's where they are ending up. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Tell me, Martin, in terms of cancer care, in your experience over the last 13 years, um, once you get into the system and once there's a recognition that you obviously have a potentially debilitating disease, potentially fatal, obviously, in, in, in a lot of instances. The, the, the care you get, whether it's public or private, does it matter in relation to cancer care? Let me tell you a story, Mick, because I went, to, I went to both private and public. I went to private for surgery and I went to public for oncology. Don't ask me how it worked out. That's just the way it worked out. And in the private setting, there are wooden chairs with beautiful blue cushions on them and they're nice and they're comfortable and there's five or six of them. In the public setting, it's the same wooden chair, the same wooden base, but there's 30 of them and no cushions. So there's people with all kinds of cancer ailments, myself included. I had to sit on one one day for three hours while my back was screaming in pain. And I just, at the end, lost it and gave out to everybody. And I really did give out to everybody. And I asked the question, what's the mentality that puts the cushions on the seats in the private, but won't put the cushions on the seats in the public? And let me explain it. That's the difference between the two. That's the difference. So in terms of perhaps the meat and drink of procedures in there, tell me if I'm understanding this correctly, Martin, 
there isn't that much difference, but in terms of the care, and as we know, particularly when you when you have a condition that can affect you, not just physically, but psychologically, the care is quite obviously vital. And in that respect, you're saying, as I understand it, that the, the private aspect of it, there's definitely, they ease it somewhat more. Yes, yes, they do, they do. And you look, a lot of the time in in the acute settings, they're just getting the numbers through the door. I mean, it is acute for a reason. They're, they're, they are doing what they can. I don't hold the, the frontline staff responsible. I think if we didn't have them, we wouldn't have any kind of health service. And how they do it day in, day out just defeats me. Mick. You couldn't face that. I couldn't face that day in, day out. But they do. And... There's a lot of agency staff in there. There's a lot of, of moving around of staff to try and accommodate all the patients. And again, the waiting lists become the steam valve, but they have been for as long as I can remember, they've been the steam valve and there's been no impetus to solve it. And I was just thinking uh, a colleague of yours, Keenan had to go and visit a, a hospital in France. He tweeted about it there the other day. Child had a fall and he'd bring it and 15 minutes. 15 minutes in and out the door, everything they needed in a hospital in France. I mean, it's not the dark side of the moon. We're not looking for miracles, but we certainly need to raise our expectations and we need to, not sympathy, we're, we're full of sympathy for each other, but we need to show solidarity for each other. You know, this week it's my da, next week it's your da. We need to be able to say, no, enough is enough, fix the problems. Yeah, I can see exactly what you're saying, Mark. I think you're referring there to Keenan Brennan, who's an Irish Examiner reporter, and, and I saw that too, actually, that Keenan tweeted about, uh, I presume he was on holidays there, and uh, there was an incident one of his children, and, and that it got dealt with very quickly. And uh, that's similar to, to stories you hear from other people who find themselves in on the continent in particular, in countries like France, but there's no doubt we have an issue in that respect. And coming to the broader scene, and, and you're well aware of the whole scene through your own work as a political activist, Martin, but I'll tell you one thing I heard a number of years ago from, from one politician. He was somebody who had uh, a lot of interest in the health area, although uh, this politician didn't serve as minister himself. But he said, he said it one day, he said, uh, if he didn't have to run for election again in the morning, he'd sort out the health service. And you have to wonder, is there some truth in that? Because it strikes you, it's all very well for us to uh, talk about um, politicians and political parties even and their approach to things. But it's not as if people don't want to do it. I mean, you take somebody, for example, like Mary Harney. Now, one does not have to uh, admire or agree with the politics of the party she represented, the Progressive Democrats. But I remember distinctly, it was in 2007 after the election, she made a point. She said, I want to go in there and do something. She could have had a handy number for herself, particularly in one of the um, economic portfolios, which would have been suited to a lot of her constituency, but she went for it. Now, whether she made much of a difference or not, is other people can judge. But, I mean, I think, she, to be honest with you, she wasn't that different from a lot of them who want to make the change. Yet it hasn't happened. And is this issue broader than simply politicians um, not putting the shoulder to the wheel, not being imaginative enough, or what? It is broader than just politicians not being imaginative. But I think it's broader in a different way. 
I think everything you've said there about housing, we've had a succession of housing ministers who have promised to break the mold, but they can't. And there's the issue. They can't do it. They're, they're ID and it is ideological. And they're, they have an ideological bent against providing what we would now call public housing, what used to be called social housing. And I think health is the same. Now, you know, I don't see that there's a whole lot of difference. We know the solutions. We know what works. And what we lack is the willpower to do it and the willpower to make the changes. Even if we take slauncher care and everybody agreed to the changes, we still lack it. Our politics has stagnated a lot, Mick. It has stagnated and it needs some life back into it. Problems never get fixed. All they end up doing is becoming profitable problems for somebody. And I mean, so in that respect, Martin, do you put the largest part of it down to the fact that it's a two-tiered system that you that you have those who have health insurance and that you have those who rely on the public sector element of it and that basically those who have insurance, as you pointed out yourself in terms of cancer care, have the prospect of better care to some extent or other and they are unwilling to uh, move towards a wholly public service. Yeah, and and you know we're kind of alone in the EU on this. We we are we have kind of a, a hybrid service which I don't think serves either the public or the private particularly well, and I don't think it does. How do we how do we fix it? Um, well, we I, we've paid for the private hospitals, we've bought them, we've rented them, we've we've had them on standby. I don't know how much money can you throw at them before you say let's just fold them into the system and count them as extra beds. And what about within the system, Martin? What about, for example, that's the other element that people do suggest and they say that it's riven with vested interest. Now, everybody has their own interest and that's entirely understandable. But take, for instance, that of hospital consultants. There's an issue there in that I would imagine that a, a large number of them, not all of them by any means, and I know some hospital consultants who work exclusively in the public sector, but a lot of them prefer the system that's there because they make a better living out of it. And despite that, you also find that a lot of them don't even want to work there because it's too much grief and they just immigrate. So how do you tackle that element of it? That's beyond merely the politics. Okay, it's been allowed to get to the point where it's it's it, the system is broken. We know it's broken. It has to be fixed. Now, if you let it get to the point where it's so broken that people are turning their backs and walking away from it, there's only one thing you can do. And that's pay them better. And I know that people say, oh, well, if you pay X, then you'll have to pay Y as well. And it's time to reevaluate these links that we, we think exist. I mean, why is a politician's pay linked to a senior civil servant's pay? Why do we take that as, as a given? Why can't we look at these issues again and say, we are in crisis. We have several crises. We are a wealthy country, and I, I think I'll keep coming back to this. We are a wealthy country, but we're not a sophisticated country. We're the Beverly Hillbillies of the EU. And, you know, we're still putting grandma on the roof in a wheelchair, you know, and so we'd want to be, become a little bit more sophisticated. Sophisticated countries have good health care, 
good housing, do we always have to be the rubes in the room, the ones where the windows are so big that everybody ends up screwing us? You know, I just think it's colonial hangover to make we don't think we're good enough to have a good health service, but we certainly are. I agree. I agree. Absolutely agree. Not that what you're saying. Um, and the other issue, again, and this, I think this is fed into the, if you want to call it the debate or, or, or the progress or the lack of progress of Sláinte Care since it became all party agreed. I get the impression that some within the system are reluctant to invest the required money because they see, and they've seen it already in some respects, that even when you pump in the further investment, it's not necessarily bettering outcomes. Now, I don't know if that's the case, but I certainly believe that there are some who perceive that to be the case, people who are clued into the thing. And that's an issue too, isn't it? Is it though, Mick? What what, what, what what they'll say, Martin, is if you look at the amount we spend and you compare it in terms of our, well, no, GDP is not uh, a proper measure because of, of, of the uh, the amount that's related to foreign direct investment. But overall, if, if you look at the amount we spend in terms of the national income and what have you, that uh, we are not getting the outcomes that the equivalent amount being spent elsewhere is getting. Now, that, that's an argument that's put forward. I don't know if it has validity, but that is what some people will say is one of the stumbling blocks to proper investment and moving ahead quickly to implement the best elements of Slanchic Care. You have to put out the fire that exists first, Mick. You know, you can't build Slanchic Care on a roaring fire and it's a roaring fire at the moment. Now, you have to pay the money to put out the fire. You have to. There isn't a way around it. You know, a million on, on waiting lists you know, what, when do you say we stop? That's one in five people on a waiting list. And some will argue, oh, some of these waiting lists are serious, some aren't serious. What happens is it starts off as a not serious waiting list, but eventually you end up on a serious waiting list. Then you end up in A&E. Then you end up repeating in A&E. They're firefighting then. You're getting good care, but you're getting chaotic care. It's not planned. It's costing extra money. It's it's costs more to do it the wrong way, but you must put out the fire first. You're not going to do it cheap, but if you don't, you end up half your population on a waiting list. Your health service not working. You can't keep staff, and A and E's just get buried under the weight of it all. Can it be done? Oh yeah, of course it can be done. So why hasn't it been done? Political will. The political will doesn't exist to do it. And why doesn't the political will exist to do it? Well, we we hear more news about queues at the airport than we do about queues for scoliosis of the spine. Is that the media or is is that the political culture? Chicken and egg, Mick. Hard to know. Hard to know. And I wouldn't like to point the finger in either direction. I do think that we play a lot of... or that we, we get a lot of distraction games thrown at us. And I think... After the period we've come through with COVID, it's been really quite divisive. And I think the first thing we need to do is all forgive each other um, and say, yeah, I was a bit of an asshole in how I wanted you to wear a mask all the time. And then the other side say, well, I could have made a better effort to wear a mask. You know, forgive each other Mm. and move on. We have big problems to solve. Absolutely. Can I ask you one final thing, Martin? And sorry, just coming back to yourself, your experience in terms of cancer care during the pandemic. 
I mean, first of all, from from a, a patient point of view, was it a lot more stressful? And in terms of the care you received as well, how would you how would you rate that within the constraints, obviously, that the frontline staff have? I was in Beaumont the first day the the first case of COVID came into it. I was there the first day. I was up on a ward. I had cellulitis in the leg, so it was pretty bad infected, and I was on IV antibiotics. And it was you. It was palpable. You could feel the anxiety. You could feel. You know, it was made real once the first case came in the door. It was made real. And then I think I've been in maybe a dozen times over the two years, make different A and E's, and gradually over time you can see the the staff becoming more more accustomed and more capable of being and, and better equipped to deal with what's there. At the present moment in time, it, it is it is the effects of COVID, which are, are a huge factor at the moment on A and E's. And it's that once somebody tests positive, then everybody in that ward has to be isolated. So it's really thrown the balance off on what they can do. And I do think there's a question there, you know, and the question is, how do we deal with COVID? You know, is it going to be this constantly trying to segregate people with COVID? Um, Are people dying of COVID? With COVID, I think these questions are important, but the overall picture is we've got to get the A and E's flowing. Have to, yeah. And just briefly, in in terms of a cancer patient, obviously more susceptible to infection, and during the time of COVID, did that increase stress and anxiety? Not just yourself, but what you observed the people who, who would have been in there um, over that period. No, I don't think so. I, I think, I think, right. I think initial stages, yes. I think my stress and anxiety about, I don't worry about it now when I go in because I wear my mask. Um, you know, I've been, I've had my vaccinations. You know, I also had, uh, COVID between those two bouts of sickness. That was the break I had for a week was having COVID, which came into the house. I didn't go out and get it, it came into the house. So. There was nothing I could do. It was just uh, uh, a risk that's been there for a long time. So I got COVID. Um, it's not the flu. I got over it. And then I was straight back into being uh, ill with the abdominal stuff again. Yeah, the hospitals are cope, are uh, the, the staff are coping. The hospitals aren't coping with COVID, the segregation, the isolation. And we need to look at that with a resources led eye. Uh, and what can we afford to do to keep the flow going? Martin, thanks very much for talking to us today and thanks for your insights, uh, both in terms of your own personal journey, a very tough time in life, and and also what you've observed. And I think uh, there's an awful lot of food for thought there in terms of uh, where we should be going with the health service. Martin McMahon, thank you. Thanks, Mike. I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you, folks, for listening. And we will see you again soon. Take care.